Welcome to the Masterminds Podcast Channel, brought to you by DonorSearch, a leader in prospect research tools and analytics, and your host, one of America's top philanthropic experts and fundraising consultants, Jay Frost. Heather Mansfield has been on the leading edge of applying tech to social good for over 25 years. Since the mid-90s, she has pioneered efforts in crowdfunding, email fundraising, and then social media marketing for the nonprofit world. As the editor-in-chief and founder of Nonprofit Tech for Good, author of the best-selling books Mobile for Good, Social Media for Social Good, The Global NGO Technology Report, and The Global Trends in Giving Report, as well as the voice behind nonprofit orgs, on social networks, and a presenter to conferences around the world online and in real life, she has trained and inspired hundreds of thousands, if not millions, to successfully use tech for the benefit of humanity. We caught up with Heather at her home office in Tucson, Arizona. Heather, thanks so much for for hanging out today and spending a little time talking about yourself and your work. Thank you, Jen. Glad to be here. I wanted to do something that we probably don't have a chance to do a lot with someone like yourself, which is to go back a bit and find out where this all started. Now, I, I know before we dive into, for example, nonprofit tech for good, all the work that we see, that you have a lot of work starting with the field of not just data, but activism. And yeah. I, I know you went to school back at UCLA, uh, and then you spent time in Latin America focusing on social justice for women, um, issues such as that. And I understand that you were in the first U.S. study group abroad that went there after uh, to Chile after the military coup in 73. What was that like? Wow, you just gave me goosebumps because no one's ever asked me that. You've done your research. Um, you know, it, it was amazing. And, and during COVID right now, my heart's just going out to all the, the kids that got their study abroad programs canceled because it was a transformational experience. And, you know, I was young, of course, so we went out dancing a lot and we went out to the wineries a lot and partied, but studying political science down there and anthropology, I was particularly interested in goddess worship, um, how ancient indigenous people used to worship female deities. So it was just fascinating, but I, I do remember we got heckled quite a bit. You know, Americans get out, there was a lot of anger left over from, you know, the Allende when he was assassinated and then Pinochet taking over, and I guess that was 73, so that would have been almost 20 years later that they allowed the first study abroad group there, and um, it, it changed my life. It gave me a foundation of Spanish, gave me a foundation of understanding not just Latin American culture in South America, but I had also studied in Mexico before that, um, so I have a strong, deep love for Latin America and social issues, social justice issues around um, immigrants here in the United States and social justice in general. It's Where, did a lot Where did all that begin for you? Gosh, you know, I don't know because I'm a farm girl from Missouri mm. and my mother, I have to say a lot of it just goes to my mother packing up the car, moving us to California and living kind of a pretty wild life in California and getting exposed to things I never would have been exposed to on the farm. 
So learning tolerance. I also grew up very poor. Um, so I think there's a lot of empathy that comes from growing up in a single parent household where your mother works at night. And you were the quintessential latchkey kid, the Gen X latchkey kid. And, you know, food insecurity was a problem. We, we just didn't have a lot of money. And so I developed, I think, a sense of empathy and understanding as I went into my 20s and, you know, started learning about social justice work, that there was such a thing as a movement for social justice, or there was a movement you know, to help poor people or um, to elevate women or to bring children out of poverty. And, you know, it's just that is just a core part of what drove me when I when I first got started. And that was in the late 90s. I, I went back to Guatemala and did some work with children. And I did everything I could to not settle down into a cubicle until I was 29 years old traveled as much as possible, did activist work. I, I actually started a website called eActivist.org in 1997, which is like change.org today. So it was a little bit ahead of its time. And it's just always been a motivating factor. But to come back to your question, I, I, I really think it came out of growing up in poverty and having a mother that just said, we're getting out of the Midwest and we're moving West and we're going to have a different kind of life. She sounds like an extraordinary person. I, you talk about uh, the role of women in everything from uh, the work that you did studying in Chile to, of course, the, the study that got us. Where's your mother in all that? Well, you know, my mother is, it's interesting. We just went to San Diego a couple of weeks ago. And just to, to give you the honest thing, you know, my mother, we moved out there. She was long hair, beautiful. She married a Harley biker guy. And, you know, we just had freedom and the, the quintessential living in the West. And I feel like much of my life is a Bob Seger song. You know, anytime I hear Bob Seger, I, I think about my mother. My mother wasn't a feminist. She wasn't an activist. She didn't really raise me to, to think about social justice in any way, but she was a single mother after, it's a long, complicated story. <laughs> She was a single mother most of the time we were together. And that wasn't really accepted back in the 70s and 80s, particularly coming from Missouri. And just watching her work and always having a just a vivacious desire to experience people and experience life. You know, she packed up a backpack herself and threw it on her back in her early 50s and went traveling through Central America. Hmm. So I, I, I think just being raised with a powerful, not powerful in money, not powerful in career, not powerful in politics or opinions, just powerful day in, day out and doing what was very difficult, which was raising a daughter on their own without child support, no father around. She just kind of set, you know, a standard of, you know, I would see other things or judgments in society about women at a very young age. And that would make me angry. You know, I would take it personally that any kind of opinion or religious belief that didn't, you know, adhere to, well, a woman can be a good mother just because she's not married or a woman can go out and get an education. What's interesting is my mother graduated from college the year I graduated from high school. And she's just been an amazing role model. And so a lot of my feminism comes from experience, come from, comes from seeing how hard it is, particularly in the 70s, 80s, and even 90s, um, supporting yourself as a single mother, 
as a woman without a college education at the time, and the judgments that parts of society put on her. So that laid the foundation for my feminism. And I think in the years that came later, it was through my travels and experiencing different kinds of people and equating those to my own experience, understanding poverty and, and what it's like to really not have anything and, and the doors that close um, because of that. I think when I found the internet and you know did my first Google search and signed up for my first Yahoo account, it was just something came together that these opinions that I had about women and feminism and social justice and the internet all combined together it seemed like, I don't know, at the time it was just, wow, this is going to change the world and this could be the tool that we've been waiting for, you know, all this time. And of course, your career goes back to a point where in the, in the early 90s, let's say, um, and during the time of your education and the first work you were doing uh, as a student in the field, you kind of alternated back and forth between uh, that cubicle-like job. I'm sure it wasn't actually a cubicle, but that and then, of course, being in the field. You, you just talked about going back to Guatemala and yeah. and uh, and working there. But before that, you had been at the Pew Center for Civic Journalism. So w- what were you doing there and how did you how did you make that switch back and forth? Because we see that throughout your your career. Well, I think like a lot of people, they're always searching, right? And I have to say, you know, I feel like I was very blessed being born to a generation that had that kind of freedom to do that kind of searching. Um, I had come back from studying abroad. I went to Los Angeles. I waited tables for six months to save money to move to Washington, D.C. The idea was I was going to get into politics. I was going to change the world there. But my personality, at least in Washington, D.C., it at the time, it didn't fit. Like everybody wore suits and everybody was really serious. And I remember I had a friend who was well-connected in Washington, D.C., a, a man that used to come in and I waited on him for years and years. He helped me get an interview with the Pew Center for Civic Journalism. It's interesting now because years later, I hear Pew all the time. I had no idea who they were. I was like, okay, yeah, I'll take it. And it was administrative assistant or something like that. And I remember when they offered me the job, they said it was going to pay $27,000 a year. And my mouth just dropped open. That was more money than I, at the time, figured I would ever make in my life. And I worked there for a year, and it was was an excellent experience because I got to travel for work for the first time. I, I learned the basics of email and, you know, the basics of living in the professional world. But it really only took me about a year or a year and a half where I really just started feeling stifled by Washington, D.C. and that cubicle existence. So, you know, not to go on and on, but I was thinking about this this morning. I got that idea. I got an idea that I was going to write letters to all my friends and all the colleagues that I had known. And I, I essentially consider this a crowdfunding campaign, but it was done through print. And so I wrote letters and I said, everyone sponsor me for a day, $25. I want to go to Guatemala. I'm going to work with street children for a year. And with the money I had saved from working at Pew and with the money I'd raised through this kind of letter writing crowd funding campaign, I then moved to Guatemala. And in my 20s, it was just, it felt more, I felt more at home in Latin America than I did in California or D.C. or Missouri. 
And, you know, it was interesting while I was down there, I was working with street children. That was a whole completely different experience. But I also did fundraising campaigns down there. That was actually probably the first fundraising campaign I ever did was because Pew didn't need fundraising was I started going to internet cafes and I started telling the story of the children and taking pictures of them and sending them around and creating an email newsletter about this experience. And then I would say, you know, mail a check to my mom and then they would mail a check to my mom and then my mom would wire me the money in Guatemala and then I would take it to, to Nino Obrero was the school. It was in Antigua, Guatemala. I'd take them to buy them clothes or medical care or something like that. So I, I, it's hard to believe even as I'm talking about it, but I, I always at some point was leading to this experience where whether it was in a cubicle or whether it was traveling and living abroad, working abroad, volunteering abroad, it all kind of was the foundation of using email, crowdfunding, fundraising to go back and, and help what I could in my little world at the time to make that world a better place. It's, it's amazing to hear about things that I'm sure most people didn't have a word for with crowdfunding back then. And email yeah, fundraising was also pretty pretty much in its infancy. It's it's extraordinary. Well, I get goosebumps again. I mean, I feel like I was born at an amazing time. I, I cannot stress to you that the first time I did a Google search, my head exploded. You know, when I got on email and started going to internet cafes, I, I really had this feeling deep down that like this is an answer to helping alleviate the injustice of the world, right? And, and I do 20 wanna, years later- I do want to <laughs> ask you if you still feel that way. Um, but but before I go there, I know the, your journey took you to some other other places. And one of them that I, I think a lot of people would find especially cool was you were affiliated with the Lilith Fair. Um, mm -hmm. So that must have definitely taken you uh, out of the field, but also out of an office. What what were you doing with the Lilith Fair? And for those who don't know what it is and, and has been, what what can you tell us about that and what that experience was like? So Lilith Fair was this awesome women's music festival. And I don't know if there had ever been anything like it at the time. It was started by Sarah McLaughlin. And I had just got back from Guatemala. I was living in LA doing my thing where I wait tables for six months to move someplace else. And I was getting ready to move to San Francisco. So I looked, I think it was Craigslist or somewhere, and I saw this job um, to be a spokesperson about corporate accountability, particularly sweatshop labor and children working in sweatshops, to go out on Lilith Fair and to talk about, at the time it was Don't Wear the Gap, I can't remember, it was other Banana Republic, Nike, Adidas, all these big brands that were sourcing uh, their clothing and their shoes from sweatshops in other parts of the world. So I got this job and, you know, it was just, as you can probably imagine, it was insane. It was totally insane. We packed up, we went to 40 different cities. This was my introduction to uh, the gay lesbian community because I was a pretty straight girl from Springfield, Missouri. And then all of a sudden I'm traveling around the United States with six lesbians and we're all traveling in this bus together. And it was just amazing. It was another part of those friends. They're still my best friends to this day. We, we've stayed in touch. It was incredibly bonding. I think we probably had more fun than actually changing any minds about the Gap or Sweatshop. The music was awesome. We had Chrissy Hines from The Pretenders, the Dixie Chicks, Susan Tedeschi, um, bands from some of the best bands in America at the time. 
And we just went around the country. My job was to talk about sweatshop labor, but we'd always cut out a little bit early, 30 minutes to go dance. <laughs> and was there a fundraising part of that? Was there a digital part to that? Because it sounds well, like there's a through line. Well, there was a fundraising part. So well, I was working for Global Exchange and they're based in San Francisco. They're a human rights organization and a big component of their work is fair trade, um, meaning mm -hmm. the artisan makes a fair living wage for the products they produce. So they had at the time a couple of fair trade stores. They had one in Berkeley and one in San Francisco. And so on Lilith Fair, we were gonna literally take a store on wheels and we had the biggest booth in all of Lilith Fair. So, you know, when you go to a festival, there's vendors. Well, we had this huge booth of fairly traded goods, everything from purses to shirts to, you know, just little Guatemalan worry dolls or whatever it was. And the fundraising component of that was to sell all the products and, you know, make a profit for global exchange. There wasn't anything like, you know, here, fill this out and become a donor. My role was particularly advocacy, getting people to sign at the time, Print, position, uh, print petitions, you know, that would go to the Gap or um, collecting email addresses if they wanted to sign up for our email list. And this was one of the first email lists I probably remember working on. So there wasn't actually a fundraising component. It was literally just traveling around the country, talking about social justice and talking about corporate accountability and sweatshop labor. Advocacy work really more than anything else. Hmm. Mm -hmm. As you talk about things like that's that petition uh, and the email lists, of course, those are again staples of everything we're doing to build audiences, but also to build awareness and mm -hmm. drive social action. But even then, of course, many of us were doing as you did, and that's working with a paper petition. But it yeah. sounds like you were finding new ways to communicate with broader audiences about important issues. Yeah, well, after Lil's Fair, I had to come back and, you know, start get, getting a little bit serious about being an adult and not just taking off all the time. And I waited, waited tables for six months to save money. And then I got a job working at, it's now, I can't remember what the organization's called now. It'll come back to me. But at the time, it was called International Development Exchange. And it was a small international development organization. And I was their communications director. And when I started, the, the scope of the work was you write, you know, four print fundraising appeals, letters, send those out. You know, you work with, I'm so old school, you work with, you know, the printing house, the post office. We did a twice yearly 12-page print newsletter. And then I came in and my particular job, I think I started in 1998 or 1999. And the reason I was hired was just because of the, some of the limited experience I'd had around using email. Some of the my work with e-activists, that website that I started. Um, at the time, PayPal had just launched their first buy button. And what was known then as Groundspring, which was acquired by Network for Good in 2006, it was the first donate now button. So when I started there, they didn't have anything digital. They didn't they had a very simple website that was, you know, terrible. And I started there with, let's start from the beginning. Let's build a new website. Let's launch an email marketing campaign. So Constant Contact, I think it'd been around for a year or two. And we were shifting, you know, from having a website. We signed up for the first Donate Now button. I think we were one of the first organizations um, in the United States to do that. 
And for the first, I think I was there for three or four years, which was a long time for me at the time. It was just learning through trial and error, how to use email to drive traffic to a donate page, how to use email to drive traffic to your website. And what was also interesting was why I was there is we started a monthly giving program. And this is one thing that's always kind of funny to me or that I think about a lot, which is there's a lot of discussion about what's new and hot, but what's still working is stuff that was working 20 years ago. It's just the technology around it has gotten better. So when I was working at International Development Exchange and we launched a monthly giving program, people literally had to write and print out a three-fold, tri-fold thing and mail it in, and then we'd enter the credit card. There was no automatic monthly billing. Once a month, you went in and billed their credit card manually. So as I mentioned, crowdfunding earlier, and then Donors Choose launched, launched, email marketing, um, the Donate Now button, the monthly giving, retaining monthly giving program. All of that was happening in the late 90s and early 2000s. Just print was a big part of it. And it didn't have the kind of automation that it did today. So I personally find that having been in this for 25 years, that the knowledge that I have, that foundation from the late 90s, early 2000s, is very valuable in a sense because it gives the full picture of what we're talking about today. It's really nothing new. Nonprofits pioneered crowdfunding. They pioneered monthly giving and website and email marketing and having somebody click a button and enter their credit card information. So I don't know. It's, 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 I'm very grateful to have been born when I was born and experienced the Internet as I've experienced it over the last 25 years. And as you talk about that, it, it strikes me that social media was that new channel that developed during that time. Yeah. It, that it, it wasn't there when it, when you were in school. And it was there suddenly, uh, of course, you know, just I'm trying to remember the year that Facebook was founded, um, but it didn't reach most of us for years. And Twitter, I think my account is now 12, 13 years old. So that's that's relatively young as well. When did you start to find those as convenient tools, either for the work that you're doing to build nonprofits or for social activism? When did you start you know, embracing that or or challenging it? Right. Well, uh, so going back to working at International Development Exchange, I did what I typically did, which is I started getting stir crazy and I left that job and I went and traveled for six months just for pleasure. And then I came back to San Francisco and, you know, I, I was in my early 30s. I was in massive debt because you can't make a lot of money working in the nonprofit sector. And I was actually starting to reach burnout. Um, you know, that, that happens. We all struggle with that. It's difficult working in the nonprofit sector and social justice at times. And so I just said, you know what, I'm packing up my bags and I'm moving back to Missouri. And I moved back to Missouri, my hometown, and I got a job at the local university as a website editor, which I was very fortunate to get that job. And I bought a house for $41,000. And about a year after I was there, somebody told me about MySpace. And I got on MySpace, it would have been 2005. Mm -hmm. And the same feeling that I had with that first Google search, the, the absolute love of email and being in internet cafes while traveling. When I got on MySpace, I, there were four or five nonprofits that I could find. I remember the Humane Society was one of them. The National Wildlife Federation was one of them. A human rights organization, I can't remember, and a dolphin organization. 
And I had the same kind of, oh my God moment, you know, which is, this is going to change everything. And so I got the idea, Nonprofit Tech for Good started as a MySpace page and it it was called Nonprofit Organizations. That's all it was, myspace.com forward slash Nonprofit Organizations. And what happened was I created this profile. I started, I followed those nonprofits and then it's hard to imagine now, but back then you could do a lot of grunt work on social media. So I literally, this is not an exaggeration, I became obsessed. And at night I would send out, you know, I worked during the day and at night I would send out four or 500 friend requests because you could do that on MySpace. I would be a comment fairy and go around and, you know, post comments, say support nonprofits. And, you know, they'd be the animated gifts of the teddy bears. It's all kind of, it's very funny when I look back on it now, but social media could be, um, what's the organic back then? There was no algorithm, particularly on MySpace. And so just the sheer volume of the friends that I was gaining, the sheer volume of my comments out there on the network, I would start waking up in the morning about a month later and I'd get 500 new followers, a thousand new followers. And I guess what you would call that is I started to go viral. This MySpace page started to go viral. And I tell you, I loved every minute of it. I loved every single minute of it. This is a story I've never told anyone, but at the time, Amnesty International, World Wildlife, World Wildlife Fund, American Heart Association, you name it, they did not have YouTube channels. They did not have their MySpace profile set up. So I literally created 50 Yahoo accounts, grabbed all those domains for them, for these large organizations. And here I am in Missouri and I'm calling World Wildlife Fund. And going, Hi, my name's Heather. Yeah, I got a Yahoo account. You got to claim this MySpace page. And I got your YouTube, you know, youtube.com forward slash WWF. And I was just obsessed. And they were like, okay, this girl's a little nuts, but all right, send us the login. And then, of course, they started working it. They grabbed their domains. And then I think everything started to change when people started to email me inside of MySpace going, how did you embed that video? You know, or how many blog posts do you think you should have featured? Or how many top friends should you have on MySpace? Should you have a song playing? So I got this idea of starting an email newsletter of MySpace tips. I don't know how it happened, but it just spread everywhere. The next thing you know, I get a call from Network for Good. And they're like, we want you to set up a MySpace page. And this will tell you back then, you know, I had no idea. This was my first paying paying job was Network for Good to set up a MySpace page. And to teach them how to do it. And I had no idea what to charge. So I charged $50 and yeah, it was just everything. <laughs> Everything's just been a learning experience. And then, you know, within six months, I found myself speaking at the National Press Club in Washington, DC, where I used to, you know, be the administrative assistant helping hold events at the National Press Club. And the next thing you know, I'm speaking at the National Press Club. Mm. So it really was one of those few kind of not overnight, but pretty quick MySpace viral success stories. And, you know, I, I just, a lot of hard work, a lot of good timing and a lot of good luck. I, I have to ask you, now that you've seen the way it's gone from organic, where you could be up at all hours talking to people you'd never met, and they were excited to share ideas where you could call up a nonprofit and say, hey, I reserve this for you. And they said, great, thank you. And they started using it to talk to new people. All of that to the world of algorithms and Russian bots. Right. How are you feeling about all this today? 
I'm so conflicted and I've been conflicted for a couple of years. I mean, you just say Russian bots and like, I get sad. Um, You know, I I quit training on social media. I quit giving webinars. I quit doing speaking engagements about three or four years ago because I found myself in an event and was looking out over the audience. And what they wanted to hear was, if you do this on Snapchat, somebody will donate. Or if you post at this time on Facebook, you'll get this much engagement. And those trainings used to work for me, you know, five, six, seven, eight, ten years ago. But I had started to look at my own data and the lack of traffic and the, the slowing of growth. And I realized I was being dishonest, giving that kind of training. And I, I couldn't live with it. I couldn't do it. So I stopped and I pulled back and I, I took a couple of years to just really kind of analyze and and sit with it and be like, am I gonna be a social media trainer again? Am I gonna do public speaking? If so, how am I gonna talk about the fact that there are Russian bots? You know, this is not a conspiracy. I I, I see them every day. And I particularly saw them in 2016 on Twitter. They were so obvious. And how do we deal with fake news and the bubbles that we're living in and how it's contributing to the destruction of democracy? Because I do believe that if we are not an informed um, American public or global public, we're not making good decisions. We're not seeing things clearly. And then just within the nonprofit sector, I cannot lie. I cannot tell you if you post this and you write a good story you will get lots of likes and people will get attached to your brand because the reality is you can write the best story, you can have the best Facebook page ever, but if you're not paying for advertising, no one's gonna see it. And I have been so used to being a passionate advocate for social media that it's really taking me, in the last year I've started to figure out how to talk about it more and what I've realized is I'm not alone. Everybody's feeling this, everybody knows this. So when they take my webinars now, which I don't give very often, I'm honest, I'm like, listen, it's advertising. Listen, this is going on. And and there's another component that didn't exist, um, which I can just say is people that are on social media all day for work in the nonprofit sector, it's very emotionally draining. Um, Some days you have good days, other days you don't. As an example, the other day I was sitting in the backyard two days ago, I got out my phone, was taking a break, happened to land on the Humane Society's page and they had just um, caught this video undercover of the dog meat trade. And that was the kind of day where I just saw like three seconds of it. And I was like, I'm never gonna unsee that. And it haunted my dreams for two nights. I, I was crying, you know, like all of this visual of the animals um, being tortured and elephant poaching and, you know, the Syrian war and all of this sort of stuff. People didn't used to see that day in, day out. So that is one of the other changes um, that is important to talk about and important for nonprofit tech people, particularly to learn how to manage in addition to the algorithms and the crazy politics and the propaganda and the rogue governments and the hacking and whatever's coming next, because there's a lot of criminals on the internet, just the day-to-day in and out of being inside of Twitter. Whereas when you first got on Twitter, it was a love machine, you know, and now it's, it's just completely different. So I talk about that more honestly now, and I just communicate to nonprofits that, listen, you need a budget, you need good graphic design, 
You need a budget for advertising. Your staff need training. This isn't something that they can, you know, just wing and throw together and be successful at anymore like I was. Um, and they, they need some vacation time and they need vacation time away from the Internet, which I never would have thought I would have said 20 years ago. You need time off the Internet every year. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I, you know, even though you've gone through this evolution, both in your thinking and what you're willing to convey to others to train at the same time, you've been doubling down in a sense on providing really great information on the sector itself. I mean, you, you've been doing these reports on the uh, global, you know, NGO tech and yeah. uh, global, um, uh, you know, giving report. Talk about that a little bit and maybe how that's evolved, but also how you see that the value of that kind of study now in the context of what you were just talking about, which is that, you know, we have this dysfunctional relationship with social media. But mm -hmm. we, we do have to rely on it. It's very important. Well, in, a, in many ways, those reports and kind of where my head's at and the kind of trainings I'm doing now, which is just going back to the basics and the core stuff I've learned over the last 25 years, go back to my roots, which is being a traveler, wanting to be out in the world, um, working with small nonprofits outside of the United States. I, I enjoy working with small nonprofits in the United States, Canada, the UK, and Australia. But over the last... 10 years and pretty much all the years I've been working online is I've noticed, let me see if I can, if I can explain this correctly. So what we went through, email marketing, the launch of blogs, you know, the launch of content management systems, donate now buttons, crowdfunding. And we did that in the early 2000s, started to perfect it over the next decade. But what I find fascinating now is there are millions of nonprofits that are coming online for the first time across the Middle East, across Africa, across Asia. Um, where am I forgetting? Latin America and the Caribbean. And they're coming online without access to the basic knowledge that we have. They don't know where, how to do an email marketing you know, campaign. They're making the same mistakes doing BCC or CCC that we were doing in the early 2000s. They don't have access to training on constant contact or MailChimp or, you know, how do you get a PayPal button on your page if you don't have a fundraising service in your own country? So in, in terms of the Global Trends and Giving Report, it's the same idea. All the research that I saw, you know, average gift, you know, how often to email, this sort of stuff, it was based on data from U.S. organizations, Canadian organizations, organizations in the U.K. and organizations in Australia. But those benchmarks make no sense to the tiny nonprofit coming online for the first time in Tanzania, or they make no sense to the tiny nonprofit coming online for the first time in Indonesia. So what I find myself doing now, actually, is going back to my roots, training on these core lessons I've learned, and then providing data through these research reports that if that nonprofit is coming online for the first time, let's say in Bolivia, they're not using U.S. data to craft their fundraising strategy or their communication strategy. They actually have a place to go to where there are benchmarks on an international level. Now, I will say people think I am a team of 20. I am one person. And those reports require building partnerships for, you know, with 50 different organizations around the world. In the meantime, I'm blogging. In the meantime, I'm working with sponsors doing weekly email newsletters, running on my social media sites. So something's got to give. And those 
reports this is the last year that they're going to be done because I simply cannot manage them anymore on my own. But they will be launching in a new format on January 1st, which is something called the Open Data Project. It's not going to be a fancy website. It's not going to be a fancy report. It's just going to be the data open and accessible, usable to everyone in real time, 24-7 um, in multiple languages. So the data will still be there. It just won't be crafted in a fancy $50,000 website and report. But again, it's just going back to the basics. Small nonprofits are what I'm interested in. I hate it when I see small nonprofits, no matter where they're located, posting four times a day on Facebook and then they're not running an email marketing campaign. Somewhere in that experience, the, the knowledge has not been provided to them that that is a waste of time. You know, you're going to raise more money and be more successful using email marketing. Um, so that's where I'm at right now is going back to my basics. Yes, my blog provides a lot of interesting data. I have a lot of different people blogging for me right now, which I never used to do. It used to be a one person blog. So I bring in the expertise, the voices of the right here and right now. But me personally, I'm going back to the basics, what I've learned about websites and email and basic online fundraising and monthly giving and crowdfunding and best practices for social media, primarily for small nonprofits that aren't doing it right or for nonprofits that are just coming online for the first time all over the world. So they don't spend 20 years making the same mistakes we did just learn straight from the get-go what works and what doesn't. But you're always looking at the next thing. I am. Just in practical sense, but also because it sounds like you're perpetually um, in, unsatisfied with the status quo. So what what is the next thing for you? Not just in terms of the tech alone, but with the organizations that you care so much about, all those small civil society organizations all, all around the world trying to work for some form of justice. How are you working with them right now to help them to grow and, and yeah. uh, achieve their objectives? Well, and the core level is um, just providing them access to the knowledge. Here's how you create a website for $19 a month. Here's how you mm -hmm. do an effective email marketing campaign. Um, here's what crowdfunding is, here's the crowdfunding services available in your country. So that is a big part of what I do, is providing the basics for nonprofits. In terms of what's new and next, maybe for my US readers, Canadian readers, and for readers all over the world, um, I'm allowing guest bloggers and sponsored posts to share their expertise. Personally, what I see and what I'm thinking about all the time in my head these days is automation. You know, so for example, just something as simple as you have a monthly giving program and that credit card is billed every month and then that credit card expires. Well, in the old days, we had to do all that manually. And if somebody's credit card expired, we have to call them or, or write them a letter. What I see, particularly for small nonprofits, is just giving them the access to the technology at affordable cost, giving them the training at an, at, you know, in an easy format to where they can start to automate a lot of these processes. So mm -hmm. the link's done monthly right easily. They, they get an email when their credit card is um, expired. So looking forward, I guess they would call that machine learning too, as well as like, say, for example, somebody comes to your donate page and they donate $50. Well, there are cookies and there's machine learning on that. So the next time that donor comes back, the default donate button is 75. 
right? But again, looking at where I see small nonprofits, because I think it's real easy to always be thinking about the future. You know, everybody's talking about TikTok right now. I did some data on that. TikTok has zero impact on donors right now. So again, even though, yes, all these new and what's next and what's coming, artificial intelligence, voice activation donations, you know, whatever it is, I, my passion still lies with the nonprofits that have been around for 15 years and are still, still emailing out PDFs of their print newsletter. So I think, yeah, I, I had mentioned this, that I'm okay with relegating. I watch it. I read it. I'm always consuming what's new and next. I'm always thinking about it. But there's something that's shifted in me that I realize that's going to be the ones that are going to pioneer that, that are actually be digging in and doing it and running the data and creating the campaigns. That's not going to be me. That's going to be a next generation of nonprofit techies. And I want those nonprofit techies to come to my blog and share their knowledge. I'm going to focus on what I know because I know that knowledge is still really important for NGOs all over the world. But in terms of what's new and next, I've got ideas. I think about it, um, but I'm not blogging about it. I'm not digging into it. I am leaving that for the next generation because that time when I was doing MySpace, that time when I was doing email marketing for the first time, there was something about being in your 20s and 30s and early 40s. I'm almost 50, you know, so I just don't have that desire and passion to learn machine learning or AI or voice, voice donations like I did 10, 15 years ago. And I'm okay with that, but I want the people that have what I had at that age, I want them to come to my blog. I want them to blog and share their knowledge through Nonprofit Tech for Good. That's where um, Nonprofit Tech for Good is going. I'm doing the core stuff, my little thing that I do. But in terms of what's new and next, Nonprofit Tech for Good is now a platform. I used to, it used to be a one-person blog. It was just me and my thoughts and my opinions and my, you know, thinking about the future and what's next. I don't do that anymore, but I want nonprofit tech for good to be the place where those that are just starting out, that are feeling the passion, the goosebumps, what you know that I had, and they write it and they want to get their name out, they want to get their knowledge out. I would like nonprofit tech for good to be a platform them to platform for them to do that. Sure. Yeah. Heather, I do want to ask you, you've been watching all the things that have happened over this last year. And as a person who's a perpetual traveler, among all the other things you are. Oh, I can gosh. imagine this must be a, a challenging time for you to sit and have to ruminate and just observe all this stuff because you can't necessarily just go everywhere. But there are people hitting the streets and a lot of people you talked about, this rising generation, they are in the street demonstrating for something. I mean, uh, often here in the United States, clearly for racial justice. Mm -hmm. um, what What effect does that have upon you? Is that... Is that fueling your fire as you work with nonprofits? What do you imagine for them beyond the tech they use, beyond the organizations they work with? What do you imagine for them and this rising generation as they're trying to make the kinds of changes that it sounds like you've always been working for as well? Well, I'll tell you what, it gives me a lot of hope. And I think, again, being a Gen Xer and coming of age of tech, I had my particular experience with it and still continue and hopefully will continue to until the day I die. Millennials, they had a different experience with their era of tech. But when I look at Gen Z, I feel like they've almost, and again, I don't wanna like hype up a generation or whatever, but I have a stepdaughter, she is 16. 
and she's on TikTok. She's one of these TikTok activists. I have not pushed activism or my opinions on her. She has come of it of her own free will. And it is just something that is becoming innate and natural to her to communicate her opinions about political events and politicians. She signs up, you know, I, I think you remember TikTok, there was some controversy about President Trump's campaign or rally that nobody showed up to because of the TikTok activists. She's all about that stuff. And so I think about when she's 19 and the skills she has, like she's coming out in two days, she lives in Missouri, she flies out five times a year. I'm like, okay, you need to sit down and you need to give me an Instagram training. You need to do this. You need to teach me this about TikTok. She is as skilled at it as a 16-year-old as I was as a 30-year-old as as in social media. And so the fact that, and then I, just what I'm seeing every day, the long lines, people going out and voting, I'm waiting in line, too bad they have to do so, but I'm glad that they are, seven to eight hours. We might really finally be you know, when I was 22 years old or however I was and old I was and did that first Google search, we might finally be saving the internet in the long run with this next generation because they're not naive about it. They've managed, you know, my daughter, my stepdaughters had to go through the whole kind of like pulling back from social media, causing, you know, de slight depression and this sort of stuff, and then coming back stronger and learning how to manage this technology in her life, but she's already done it by the time she's 16. So when I think about her unleashed and her friends unleashed with their political activism, with their technology savvy, with their ability to innately understand things like a left quarter swipe, you know, I, that's just not even intuitive to me. That when I think about when she's in her 20s and her 30s, and hopefully we go through a renaissance in this country again of democracy and civil participation and racial justice and justice for people that don't fit into the heterosexual white, you know, normal Midwestern where I grew up farm life that we will see in America that I've always dreamed of. So I'm hopeful. I'm not going to be the one to do that. And I am okay with stepping back. I take her to the protests, right? We went to a couple. I, if she wants a t-shirt, I buy it for her. We have conversations, but I'm not going to be that one out in the streets. I did that in my 20s and 30s. I'm super excited for the next generation and the next era of technology, whatever that is going to be, because it, it might have finally, it might be finally time that that promise that I saw and many people saw in the late 90s to use tech for social justice is going to be happening in the 20s, 2020s and the 2030s. I'm hopeful. Very difficult the last few years. Um, just everything being so nuts, particularly the last year. But I'm finding myself increasingly with a lot of hope. Thank you so much, Heather. This has been really wonderful to talk with you. The Masterminds podcast is underwritten by DonorSearch, the world leader in donor intelligence solutions for not-for-profit organizations. Our producer is Terrence Diggs. Our theme music is composed and performed by Ahmad Ibrahim. The voice introduction to our program is performed by Ryan Ibrahim. You can subscribe to the Mastermind series on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find blogs, livecasts, and flash classes with our featured masterminds at donorsearch.net or check the show notes and descriptions.